Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. I'm James Harding. I'm the editor of Tortoise and the host of The News Meeting. It's the podcast where we try and make sense of what should be leading the news with three people who each come and pitch the story that they think matters the most. On the latest episode, we're joined by the journalist, historian and author Satnam Sangera. Like almost everyone, we go down the rabbit hole of that Princess of Wales photo editing story, and then Satnam explains why he thinks the Church of England paying reparations for its links to slavery should really be leading the news. Just search for Tortoise News wherever you get your podcasts and follow the feed so you don't miss an episode. Hello, it's Basha here, and you're listening to the Slow Newscast. This week, we're stepping into the world of the super rich. And let me take you back to 2016. A judge ruled that year that £450 million should be given to a woman called Tatiana Akhmadova as part of a divorce settlement. It was, and it remains, the largest divorce settlement ever awarded by the High Court in London. Only the money didn't go to Tatiana. It became part of a monumental game of hide-and-seek. This week, the reporter Jane Martinson investigates the case of Akhmadov versus Akhmadova, a story about extraordinary wealth and extraordinary bitterness. Verdutz Post, Umsteigemöglichkeit auf Linie 13 nach Scharnwald. So I've just hopped off the bus at Vaduz. It's the capital of Liechtenstein. It's got a population of about 6,000 people, so I feel like I stick out like a sore thumb. <laughs> it's really quiet, but really, really beautiful. And I'm just waiting to get the bus up to Stabik Treasure House. Hidden away among the snow-capped mountains of Liechtenstein. Those little bells you can hear in the background are sheep. And there's a little stream. Um, but then if you turn around, there's this the big concrete eyesore of a building. In this picturesque, tiny landlocked principality sits a giant red brick and concrete wedge. It doesn't, admittedly, look like much from the outside. But inside, well, it's an entirely different story. I guess if you didn't know what it was, you would never suspect that there were just millions and millions of riches in there. Welcome to Stabik Treasure House, your safest place. The Stabik Treasure House. Behind its well-guarded walls are over 6,000 square metres of gold and precious things, jewellery, eye-wateringly expensive works of art, watches and classic cars. Our offering at a glance vaults and safes for valuables and precious objects of all descriptions. High-end climate technology. It's so strange, this unlikely luxury storage facility. This is an important and game-changing part of your asset protection strategy. But to the uber-rich, this 
is the perfectly normal world of asset protection. Only the Swiss Customs Authority has the right to look at what's inside. So I've just tried to ring the doorbell for Beak about four times and not had a response. The lobby's pretty dark. If you look in, you can see that there's just like this massive sort of jar sculpture thing with a big dragon on it, some gold vases and some posh leather couches. So you can tell that the luxury in this building, I just spotted a massive security camera pointed at me as well. Patricia is a reporter at Tortoise, the newsroom where we make this podcast. And she's in Liechtenstein on the trail of a modern art collection that's been hidden away in this high security vault. It's a collection thought to be worth $146 million. It includes 11 works of art, including Rothko's Untitled, Blue and Yellow, painted in 1954, which went on to receive one of the highest prices at auction of any of his artworks. 46 million to be exact. There are war holes in there too, reportedly his famous Marilyn Monroe screen prints. We knew when we sent Patricia there that getting her inside this treasure chest would be difficult. And so it was. Hi there, um, do you speak English? Yeah. Hi, my name's Patricia. I called you a couple of days ago about um, potentially coming to see the house. Oh, and I've been sending you How, how are you? I'm actually standing outside the building. I thought I would try and come and see you. Do you think there's any chance I could come and, and, and meet the team at some point today? I can tell you a bit more about what I'm doing. The reason she's there, trying to get inside, is because this building is at the heart of one of the biggest divorce cases ever seen in the UK. In 2016, a judge in London's High Court ruled that the art collection held in Liechtenstein should be given to a woman called Tatiana Akhmadova as part of a divorce settlement, only it didn't go to Tatiana. Instead, the art stored away in this alpine vault remained the property of her former husband, a man called Farkad Akhmadov. He just ignored the court order. In fact, I think he called it toilet paper. So this is a story about hidden art, mega mansions and super yachts. There are helicopters and private jets, jewellery and gold, all of which make headline writers happy when the very wealthy battle it out in court. But it's really about the super rich, where they hide their wealth and how they ignore the rule of law. I'm Jane Martinson, and in this episode of the Slow Newscast, I've been investigating the story of the UK's biggest ever divorce order. A turbulent, angry case which led the judge to say, all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. With apologies to Tolstoy, the Akhmadov family is one of the unhappiest ever to have appeared in my courtroom. I've been covering media and business stories often involving powerful and wealthy men for a long time. Recently, I've been following the story of another rich but unhappy family. The Barclay Brothers, owners of the Telegraph Media Group. Two years ago, it was a family feud involving espionage and rows over succession. That's been settled. But now, Sir Frederick Barclay is in the midst of an acrimonious divorce case. In May, this knight of the realm was called reprehensible by a High Court judge. 
for selling his superyacht and keeping the millions rather than using them to pay his ex-wife. With the case ongoing, I can't say much, but a few days ago I was back in the High Court as the judge told Sir Frederick that he could face prison for not paying his ex-wife £50 million. A family feud which had ended up in court, tick, a complicated web of offshore trusts which made it hard to discover who owned what, double tick. So when I read about a woman who had spent years trying to track down her husband's money, my interest was piqued. It seemed like there was, perhaps, a pattern. But this story, Akhmadov versus Akhmadova, starts, as many divorce stories do, with two people who fell in love. On her website, Tatiana tells how she was a 17-year-old student when she first met Farkad, who was almost twice her age and had been married before. It was 1989, Moscow. His suit made him seem like a very appropriate gentleman. Tatiana was pregnant by the time they married, just a few years later, a time when the breakup of the Soviet Union would lead to huge riches for a handful of men. One of those men was Farkad Akhmadov. They moved to London in 1993. An oil and gas trader, Farkad went back and forth to Moscow while Tatiana stayed in the UK. She has described herself as a hands-on mother who cared for and brought up her two sons by herself, apparently without the assistance of a nanny. Like so many children of wealthy Russian oligarchs, both their sons went to private schools. They went to university in England too. After he made his first billion by selling a stake in the Russian gas producer Northgas, the money snowballed. The couple started accumulating, as well as the mansion in Surrey worth 20 million, another in the south of France and one in Kensington. There were two helicopters, some vintage cars, jewellery, works of art, and a private jet, which cost 40 million pounds. Tatiana says she became a British citizen in October 2000. But not long after that, cracks started to appear. There were allegations of adultery on both sides. The unhappiness continued, and by 2013, Tatiana filed for divorce. So basically, this case dates back to 2016. Jane Croft is the law courts correspondent for the Financial Times, and as part of her job, has covered quite a few big money divorce cases. When Farkad Ahmedov, an oil trader, was ordered by the High Court to give his wife Tatiana £450 million. It was, and remains, the largest divorce settlement ever awarded in the High Court in London. It's hard to get your head around a sum of money that large. What this meant in real terms was that Farkad had to give Tatiana all the contents of their family home in Surrey, the collection of modern art valued at £90 million and an Aston Martin worth some £350,000. Then he had to give her another £350 million on top. Except he didn't actually pay anything. So the wife had to basically start her own legal battles to try and enforce the award. 
she she basically claimed that she'd never received a penny of that of that sum. This case was like bogged down in enforcement because Akhmedov like resisted the award and he sort of triggered a whole you know global tussle over assets. It's the global reach of a story like this that makes it so complicated. It was a court in London that ruled that Farkad must pay his ex-wife more than £450 million, but the wealth itself was scattered around the world. So there were kind of lawsuits in different parts of the world, ranging from like Monaco to Dubai, over whether or not Tatiana could um, seize certain assets like a super yacht called Luna. I'll come back to Luna, the super yacht, later, but for now you just need to know that Farkad bought the yacht from his friend... Roman Abramovich, it has two helipads, a huge pool, a staff of 50, and a missile detection system. Even the luxury lifeboats are like limousines and cost $4 million each. You get the picture. The bitterness of the case comes out in the court documents, which Patricia, who has been helping me on this story, has been going through. It's where Timor, their eldest son, becomes a central character. There's this sense, when you, when you look through the documents, of the fact that he's trying to sort of hang on to his money and that he and his dad are, are conspiring against the wife. That much is said by the judge himself. In 2015, Temur was given 50 million by his dad. And there is a quote from one of the lawyers to the son saying, you know, the whole point of mortgaging the major assets, the boat, the art, the aircraft, suitably located bank is to make it infinitely harder for your mother to enforce against them. Wow. So it's clear that the son is involved. There's also a WhatsApp from Farkad, the dad, to Timur, the son, saying, I will burn this money rather than give it to her. And that all comes out in the court documents. That all comes out in the court documents. So how much money is is transferred over to Timur then? And how is that being used to to hide the asset? There's large transfers of money to the Sun, 7.5 million, 50 million. And I think in total, it comes to $106 million between January of 2014 and April of 2019. And these are coming from hold, holding companies um, kind of across the globe, but in particular in Liechtenstein and Panama. And his father is basically saying, this is not my wealth. I've already given this to my son. And therefore, my wife has no right over it because it's not mine. Exactly. And what ended up happening in this case is that Tatiana Akhmedova ended up having to sue her own son in order to try to get her hands on some of these assets. That's right. Tatiana had to sue her own 27-year-old son for £75 million. It was a pretty extreme move. But then again, not many sons end up being called a lieutenant in their father's campaign to hide money. The messages between father and son read out in court are pretty shocking. One of Timur's texts to an associate reads, If the Tatiana problem did not exist, my father would not move his assets anywhere. Then come the all caps. He wants to move out of Switzerland, cut her balls off, get divorced and be a free man. In a scathing verdict, the judge in the divorce case, Mrs Justice Knowles, accused Timmer of lying to court, breaching court orders and failing to provide full disclosure of his assets. 
I find that he is a dishonest individual who will do anything to assist his father, she said. But fighting her eldest child and her husband was only part of Tatiana's problem. Beyond the 75 million she was fighting her son over, she still had to track down the rest of it. The money a judge said she was owed. The judge did say that Tatiana Akhmedov had been the victim of a series of schemes designed to put every penny of the husband's wealth beyond her reach. We know from the court documents that those schemes start long before the divorce reaches the High Court. I've been going through these massive court documents and just from trying to take notes, I've had to make myself a glossary because I think there's about 20 companies, at least 10 trusts, you know, Simmel, Navy Blue, Counselor, Ladybird, Arbadge, Long Lasser. This web of offshore trusts scattered across the world is pretty complicated. But of course, that complexity, it's sort of the point. So the first thing that you see him do in February of 2014, so this is literally just a couple months after Tatiana files for divorce, is he buys this 260 million euro super yacht from his friend. Is that Roman Abramovich? Yeah, it's this insane yacht. I was just watching it on YouTube. It's got two helipads. It's got limousine, lifeboats, whatever those are. It's got bomb-resistant doors. It's got a spa, you know, kind of wealth that you can't even imagine. But what's quite interesting about it is that he set that up in a holding company in Panama. Panama, as anyone who's read the Panama Papers will tell you, is one of those jurisdictions where it's really hard to know who owns what. Farcad makes use of several of these so-called secrecy jurisdictions. So there's nine jurisdictions that he moves within. The three main ones are Liechtenstein, which I've just come back from, the UAE and Qatar. And why are they the main ones? So they've not got an enforcement convention with England and Wales. So in short, if your wife is suing you for divorce and there's going to be an English court order, the smart thing to do is move your money to places where that court order doesn't reach. In this case, a judge made a court order on the 15th of December 2016, awarding Tatiana 41% of the Akhmadov fortune. Five days later, on the 20th of December, a worldwide freezing order was put in place to prevent the assets being moved. But it was already too late. I think this is probably the most surprising bit of this case for me. So £453 million awarded to her and the judge's quote is it's clear that the husband was attempting to hide the companies in an offshore trust because he was faced with the wife's imminent claims in these proceedings in other words he's saying it's so transparent that you're trying to hide the money this is on the 15th of december on the 16th of december so literally the following day akmanov transfers the yacht from one holding company to another and then to another one by 2018, Tatiana has managed to get Luna, the super yacht, which had been registered in the Marshall Islands, impounded in Dubai. And she has a court order in place to seize what was described as a rusty helicopter in the Isle of Man. But she still hasn't received any of the money outlined in the court order. So she asks for help. 
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So a litigation funder will basically back a legal dispute and pay for lawyers and specialist asset recovery people, accountants, that sort of thing, in return for a percentage of any eventual award. It's a way of them basically being able to take on the case. There's no cashier at the court. You have to go and collect. So people like us, the asset recovery specialists, come in in order to to give legal effect to, to that decision. This is Michael Redman. Um, all it is is a decision of the court saying you're entitled to X. There's no automatic mechanism for, for the payment of that judgment. He's the managing director of Burford Capital, a firm of litigation financiers. They typically work on corporate cases or class action lawsuits. But Burford Capital has increasingly been hired by women women who need help getting their ex-husband to comply with court orders, women like Tatiana Akhmadova. A person with a piece of paper in their hand is put in the position of, of having to go around the world and chase their assets and having to, having to force them to the table to give effect to that, uh, to that piece of paper. From reading some of the judgments over the last few years, would it be fair to say that this is wealthy men evading national laws, making a fool in a way of national laws because they have global assets? Yeah, it's an interesting question, an interesting way of putting it. I think probably they are not evading national laws, but they are exploiting the loopholes that exist between nations when it comes to the enforcement of those kind of judgments. For example, if, if the, the proceeding is happening in, in England, they may well um, hire legal counsel, they'll turn up to those hearings, they'll be fully represented, they'll show due deference to, to the court, etc. But when the decision comes down and they have no intention of paying, then they'll exploit those loopholes that favour the, the debtors in those kind of situations and hide assets, move assets, and basically evade or avoid the, the enforcement of, of that judgment. The asset recovery specialists then have to track money across multiple jurisdictions. 
You'll remember in the Akhmadov case, there are nine. You might find that there is an asset in one country, that the structure that's holding it is based somewhat somewhere else, and the person who's ultimately in control of that is based somewhere else, and all of a sudden you've got three different jurisdictions involved. Um, so they, they rack up pretty quickly. And is this why when you're trying to track assets, there's a big focus on things like the super yacht and property? Those kind of, whatever you want to call them, marquee assets, grab the headlines, they grab a lot of attention, but then are often the things that realize value ultimately. So they can be you know, pressure points, they certainly can be lucrative if you get your hands on them and liquidate them at the, at the right time. Um, obviously things like super yachts depreciate in value, so in some ways they're less good than cash, and the ideal is getting, getting cash as much as possible because you know it's, it's cash. This is how the Daily Mail covered the attempts to seize Luna from Port Rashid in Dubai. SBS veterans hired to storm Russian oligarch's superyacht. Now, it wasn't exactly true that former Marines from the naval version of the SAS had tried to seize the yacht, but it did make asset recovery sound like something out of a heist movie. And when I speak to specialists in the field, they do talk about having to protect themselves against spyware such as Pegasus or of using mirrors to check underneath their cars before driving off. So there is definitely a hint of James Bond about this world. But day to day, it's more mundane, more data capture and legal agreements than clandestine missions in foreign ports. I am part of Spartan Group and what we do here is help people, companies, solve problems, very simply. Ross Henderson managed money for Farkad in Switzerland before switching sides and helping Tatiana with her legal case following the divorce. He can't talk about the Akhmadovs, but he is fascinating on the subject of asset recovery. What sort of percentage of your work is divorce cases? 40%. About 40%, so it's quite high. The more I've looked into this, the more I feel that in, in so many divorce cases, at whatever level, but particularly this kind of uh, amounts of money, it sort of ends up depending on the man's desire to do the right thing by his former partner. Is that too simplistic? I suppose if you take the most extreme, absolutely. If he is in a jurisdiction that gives him flexibility, then it really is down to what type of individual he is. The ones with lower moral fibre tend to uh, go one way as opposed to the other. If I am a woman divorcing a very wealthy husband, tell me how you can help me. What sort of thing can you do? The first point is if you are thinking of getting divorced, you want to really have an idea of where your husband's assets are and, and what he's doing and what sort of person he is and the, and the likelihood of him doing something untoward. And you know, once you've got the answer for that, it's very simple. You start putting together a picture. And if, and if that's not something that, that you can do as an individual, then you come to someone like us who can help put together a profile of the individual. And we do this through, through research, open source, or um, you know, sort of boots on the ground, working out a, a complete matrix of, of what's going on. We're not just talking bank accounts, are we? We're talking yachts and properties around the world and offshore trusts. And what's the sort of most complicated kind of asset that you've had to deal with? Typically, trusts complicate matters. Movable assets are always hard. So boats and planes, they can be removed and putting jurisdictions that are hard to access. 
But if you have the time and the patience, ultimately long term, there's generally always a, always a way. If you've got these complicated assets, if you could try to get your hands on something like a building in the UK, that's probably a, a sort of wiser course of action. Yes. I mean, that's the low hanging fruit, really, isn't it? It is if you have a British judgment assets under the UK law are they going to be the easiest ones to go after you know it may take some time if there's layers that you need to unpick be it companies and and trusts etc but it's there and it's not going anywhere how many of these cases actually end up with the women the wives getting more than a fraction of what the court order handed out that's a very hard question because you're never quite you'll never you'll never know what the final number is uh, and what has been organized be an interesting project actually to go get, go around the houses finding out exactly how much people got. That's Harry Abdi Collins joining in. He works with Ross at Spartan. Harry spent ten years in the armed forces, where he worked on counterterrorism among other things. Now he uses his expertise in different, more corporate battles. I do think I've come across a case that has been exactly the judgment. So the High Court order and judgment merely ends up firing the starting gun in an arms race to follow the money, as long as you have the money to pay, of course. This may be a difficult question, but technology, it seems like technology both is an incredible help and, and also sort of a real barrier to doing what you're trying to do to help people. If you were to say the balance, you know, the use of technology, is, is that getting harder or does it help more? Is it? Friend or phone? Oh, 100% friend. 100% friends. The amount of data that we are able to glean through our investigations on, on individuals, companies, corporations, you know, far exceeds what it ever used to be. You're often playing cat and mouse with the movable asset. And the wonderful thing about uh, the world as it is right now is data and the amount of data that is out there on movable assets. So, for example, if it's a private jet, a private helicopter, quite often a yacht, we can track those fairly easily. And then it's about getting the right freezing orders in the right place. You've both been involved in really long, drawn-out, difficult cases. Have you ever been frightened? I think our priorities is is really the client. The client quite often is the one who is um, intimidated by the opposition, and we put measures in place to ensure their safety. But um, it, it is extraordinary the lengths that some people go to to intimidate their exes, or even just, I mean, you know, the press getting the press involved in, in a story, getting you hounded by the press is intimidation that is quite frightening. Can be quite frightening, yeah. Ah, yes, the role of the media. Jane, it's a tool, isn't it? If you are involved in one of these cases and you open up the tabloids at the weekend or your friends are calling you up saying, I've seen this article and everything else, you know, gosh, I didn't know that happened or I did know this or whatever. You know, it just mounts the pressure up on the individual who is quite often a vulnerable, vulnerable person, given that they're going up against such resources. So those tools can grind them down. If you're coming to a battle and um, you've got significant resources, then you can pay for more press. Let's be honest, the, the press uh, is there as a vehicle that, that is used in these cases to get the message across that they want to get. And, and I, I mean, I don't want to say that it's, it's a male or female thing, but quite often it is the other party, the lesser party, that comes off worse in the press. While reporting on this story, I've struggled with calling Tatiana Agmadova a victim. She's an extremely wealthy woman laying claim to her share of a huge fortune. Yet, there does seem to be an injustice here. 
and a pattern too. The person left chasing the cash is nearly always a woman. Even with the law on her side, she struggles to win against an opponent with more money and more power. It feels like the system is working for the benefit of the very rich and they're nearly all men. Of course, the sums of money involved mean women like Tatiana don't get a lot of sympathy. No, they don't. It's because they don't because they don't stop and they want and I suppose it's that downfall. It's that having that beautiful life. This is Rosie Shum. She's a family partner in the law firm Forsters and she specialises in high net worth matrimonial disputes. She suspects that very wealthy men increasingly feel they don't have to listen to the words of some English judge. Yeah, I think there is a complete disregard for judicial hegemony and and power. I, I think that is increasing. I think that's unfortunate, that lack of respect. Judges anticipate some of the problems, she says, and award women more of a share in an asset that they might be able to get their hands on, a house in Belgravia, say. I think if there is nothing else in the asset pool, that's when it's tragic. That's when it's absolutely brutal and tragic, you know, and I, I use the word tragic and I don't mean to sound overdramatic, but I think it is. I think it really is that you can't then get anything out of it. And you do see these poor, you know, these poor wives like Michelle Young on this sort of quest, on this never ending quest to get something. Rosie talked about Michelle Young, whose divorce from her property developer husband, Scott, made headlines both for the size of the settlement and for Michelle's subsequent battle to get the cash. Scott Young was suspected of links to the Russian mafia and ended up spending six months in prison for failing to pay. He died in 2014 after falling from a balcony of his London flat onto the railings outside. Michelle Young claimed throughout that he was hiding substantial assets and she spent millions of pounds trying to force him to pay. This was my former home for five years. I think she started the documentary, didn't she, by standing outside her what once was her home. This is very hard because this is the first time I've been back to this house since we sold it in 2001. When it was this beautiful palace behind her. This is the main driveway here, which it starts at the top there. We used to have mini cars sitting on the driveway. Ferraris, Bentleys, Phantoms. And then you saw her in her flat with her pooch and the dog was weeing on the floor or whatever. And Michelle, the divorce has meant radically downsizing. You know, and it's sort of like there's this huge dichotomy between a former life and a current life. I think people are generally unsympathetic of that. They think, oh, well, you're living like me now. There's a levelling out there. And the fact that she's pursuing something that she can't then get, it's seen to be very sad and very tragic there's a sort of Shakespearean tragedy to, to it all really isn't there yeah um a sort of poignancy that I don't think yeah I think that's probably why we're not sympathetic to her but that's very sad isn't it that we're not London may have become the divorce capital of the world but it wasn't always so the landmark ruling in which fairness and equality became the yardstick for the division of assets only became law in 2000 that's just 20 years ago. It basically dates back to a what was then the House of Lords, which ruled in 2000 in a case involving two farmers by the name of White, that the homemaker and the breadwinner should be able to equally access 
that the fortune and divide the fortune up upon divorce. The key sentence in that ruling was, there should be no bias in favour of the money earner and against the homemaker and the child carer. It means that the weaker spouse, the weaker financial spouse in a divorce case is more likely to be awarded a generous award in London than in other countries. I know you've written in the past about whether London is sort of in danger of becoming sort of there's divorce tourism going on. Yeah, I think there is some talk about sort of divorce tourism. You know, couples who have got links to London, even if they've divorced overseas, and, you know, one party believes they've been treated unfairly, they can apply for permission to bring their cases to be heard by the English courts under what's called Part 3 of the Matrimonial and Family Proceedings Act 1984. That act allows one party to sue for divorce in the UK if the family has a house here, even if they had been divorced somewhere else. In fact, Akhmadov also claimed they'd been divorced years before in Moscow. The High Court judge simply refused to believe him. But for all their appearances in the papers and their very public divorce, we know very little, really, of the couple at the heart of this story. Nearly all of the pictures of Tatiana Akhmadova are of her outside the courtroom, wearing beautiful clothes and looking well-groomed. The few pictures of Farkad Akhmadov are mainly of him wearing a suit. Although there is one of him with his new girlfriend, a beauty queen half his age, on his super yacht. Oh yes, did I forget to say, after five years and many millions in court fees, and despite being impounded in Dubai, Farkad got to keep his beloved yacht, Luna. There are apparently these websites where you can find a yacht. Hang on, let me look for Luna. Yes, Luna MH, I presume that is Marshall Islands. Oh, you can click on a map and see exactly where it is. There's a route tool and you can see that it's moored in Hamburg, that it came, the last stop before that was Gibraltar. It looks like after years of being impounded in Dubai, it's now in a shipyard on the Elba, Dock 16, in fact. Earlier this year, in July, the case of Akhmadov versus Akhmadova reached a settlement five years after the order of $453 million was made. Tatiana walked away with a reported £150 million. That's a vast sum of money. But it's only one-third of the original settlement. And she ended up paying £75 million of it to Burford to finance the fight. Yeah, that's roughly half of her final payout going straight to the litigation funders. As for Tatiana's relationship with her son, we may never know if he heeded her hope, given in a sworn statement that the court case makes him reflect on the propriety of his conduct. Hello, hi. Hi, Alexandra. I'm so sorry to bother you again. Yes. So I just spoke to my editor who asked if there's basically, if I were to stay until 4.30, I'd have to book a hotel night to stay here overnight. So I was just wondering if there's any chance if you know whether an interview might happen. Uh, 
I just wanted to call you to let you know that I um, asked Dr. Seeger and I unfortunately have to tell you that there's no interest on our side. Um, oh, I'm so sorry so to hear that. Yeah, I'm sorry. Well, thank you so much for your time anyway. Tell you that. We never did get to see the artwork hidden away in the Stabik treasure house in Liechtenstein. Presumably, the Warhols and Rothkos are still there, now owned by Tatiana, who got hold of them eventually after what became a really expensive game of hide-and-seek. That game, where the very wealthy hide their assets and then men like Harry Abdi Collins try to find them, it isn't going away. And of course, firms like Spartan and Burford can make good money out of it. Taking on Tatiana's fight certainly went quite well for Burford. And as yet, there are very few signs of the political will for a cross-border clampdown on offshore trusts. There's only so far that the English courts can go. And I think it's that global pursuit that you're talking about that would mean a global clampdown. I just don't see how that's going to happen. Any time, certainly in our lifetime, I don't think it will. Since the agreement, very little has been heard of either Tatiana or Farkad. All that remains is Tatiana's website, something that feels like it was set up in a desperate moment to try to set the record straight. Tatiana's five-year battle has done little to deter others. There's a case set to be heard in the High Court next year which could make the Akhmadov case seem like small fry. Natalia Potanina is suing her ex-husband, Vladimir Potanin, said to be Russia's second richest oligarch for £5 billion. She was awarded $41.5 million by Russia's courts back in 2014, but she argues that she should have received a fairer share of his reported £20 billion fortune. And so she's come to London. A lot of money and ink is likely to be used in that case, but whether Natalia Potanina can ever really win is up for debate. Working on this story has made me realise that it's rarely clear who the winners are. Certainly not those who believe in the rule of law or in transparency and accountability. And sometimes it feels as though these cases make losers of us all. And unfortunately, sometimes truth does not win. That's the nature of people, power and money. Thanks for listening. This episode was written and reported by me, Jane Martinson, with additional reporting by Patricia Clark. It was produced by Katie Gunning. Sound design is by Tom Kinsella.
Thanks as ever for listening to this episode of the Slow Newscast. Now, if you haven't listened to our brand new investigative series, Sweet Bobby, then go right away and subscribe and clear your diary for an afternoon. It's by my colleague, Alexi Mostras, who's our investigations editor, and it really is that good. And if you want access to any and all of our podcasts early and ad-free, just go and sign up to Tortoise. Go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and use the code BASHA50, that's B-A-S-I-A-5-0. Thank you, stay warm, stay safe, and we'll see you next week. I'm James Harding. I'm the editor of Tortoise and the host of The News Meeting. It's the podcast where we try and make sense of what should be leading the news with three people who each come and pitch the story that they think matters the most. On the latest episode, we're joined by the journalist, historian and author Satnam Sanghera. Like almost everyone, we go down the rabbit hole of that Princess of Wales photo editing story and then Satnam explains why he thinks the Church of England paying reparations for its links to slavery should really be leading the news. Just search for Tortoise News wherever you get your podcasts and follow the feed so you don't miss an episode.